evidence and answers. Is there really evidence for an intelligent creator? What is this evidence that we can look at? And how do you present the arguments for God to a group of teenagers? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers radio broadcast with your host, Pat Zucran. Pat is an international teacher, speaker, and author in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. In this episode of Evidence and Answers, we will tune in as guest speaker Clint Manley discusses to a group of high schoolers the overwhelming evidence for God. This message was taken from the 2019 Evidence and Answers Youth Apologetics Conference. Now... Here's Clint. So what I'm going to be talking about is the case for the existence of God. And like I said, I want to give you a framework for your thinking. So imagine with me for a moment a courtroom. Imagine a courtroom, and it's all decked out with wood paneling, and there's a judge and a jury and a witness and someone on trial. You guys all know what a courtroom looks like and, and what takes place in a courtroom. And I want you to think of the realm of apologetics and the realm of reason as a courtroom. And it has all of these different components in it. And this is the framework I want to give you for your thinking. In this courtroom, the ultimate judge is truth. And listen, the verdict of truth is final. It doesn't matter what your opinion about the truth is. The truth is the truth regardless of whether you believe it or not. That's the definition of truth. And each of us sits on the jury in this courtroom. And our responsibility is we have to weigh the evidence and come to a conclusion of what truth is. And the important thing is that our our beliefs line up with the verdict of truth. That's how we know that our beliefs are good ones. And listen, guys, both atheists and theists, they both make their decisions in this courtroom. Don't let anyone tell you that Christians have to have this super degree of faith in order to believe in what they believe. Atheists have to have just the same amount of faith, if not more, in my opinion. That's why I'm a Christian. We all make decisions in this courtroom of truth. And there's a lot of things that can be on trial in this courtroom. Pat is going to put some things on trial later today. He's going to look at the reliability of the Bible. He's going to look at the evidence for the resurrection. We could look at the historical Jesus this morning. Specifically, I'm going to be looking at God and does he exist. That's the case that we're going to be trying in this courtroom of truth. And what we're going to be looking at are the witnesses that contribute to this case towards the existence of God. And and listen, please, this is very important. There are many different witnesses that point to the reality that God exists. There's not just one. There are many. I have a list in the notebook of 15 or 16 just basic ones that contribute to the reality that God exists. And because there's so many witnesses, the case doesn't rely on any one witness. So if we find out that one of these witnesses was actually lying, that it wasn't a very good witness, it doesn't make the case collapse. You just get rid of the one witness. You still have many other witnesses that are testifying to the reality that God exists. And listen, some of these witnesses are going to be more convincing to you than other witnesses. I have certain ones that I think are incredibly convincing, that are undeniable to me. And then there are others that I believe are true, but they're not quite as powerful in my opinion. So you have to look at these, think them through, and think, oh, which one of these really contributes to me believing that God exists? And I want you to see when all of these witnesses' testimonies are taken into account, when the evidence and the the arguments are all weighed in the balance, there is an excellent case for the existence of God. Please don't let anyone say, There is no proof that God exists because there is great evidence. Now, let me give you a few clarifications. I just said the word proof, and I probably should not have because we're not talking about proof this morning. 
in reality, this courtroom is just like any other courtroom. You can't prove anything 100%. Nothing in life can you prove with 100% certainty. It's impossible. You can't even know that you yourself are not an experiment in some massive thing with 100% certainty. It's impossible. And so when we're talking about proving that God exists, what we're really saying is, is there reasonable evidence to conclude that God exists? And there must be an acceptable standard of evidence that make this verdict reasonable. And so you have to ask the question, what level of evidence would convince me that God exists? Or if you're talking to someone else, you have to ask them the question, what evidence would you need to see to make God's existence more probable than not? You have to. That's critical. When someone says to, to you, prove to me that there's a God, you have to know what their standard of evidence is before you can really engage with that. And the other clarification I want to make is which God exists. This case that I'm going to make this morning, it doesn't prove the God of the Bible exists. This proves generic monotheism is what we call it, that there's one God that exists. But in order to make the case that the God of the Bible exists, we would need to try that in an additional case. And I'm not going to do that this morning. Pat will go into that a little more later with the resurrection of Jesus. So, like I said, there are many different witnesses. This morning, we're just going to look at three. And I think these are three of the most powerful. I'm going to go through them, and I'm going to have to go through them quickly, so I'm not going to be able to dig into a lot of the details. If you have questions, please submit them, and, and I'll, we'll try to answer them later today. But the first witness we're going to look at is called the no-free-lunch witness. The no-free-lunch witness. The philosophical term for this is the Kalam cosmological argument, if you want to go and, and research it later on your own. And what this witness tells us is it says that God is the only thing that could explain the beginning of the universe. This witness tells us that there's no such thing as a free lunch. That's a term in economics which basically means someone always pays the price for something. There's no such thing as a free thing. You can't get something from nothing. And so all of these witnesses give arguments. And so they give pieces of evidence and then they lead to a conclusion. And, and the first thing that this no free lunch witness says is that whatever starts must be started. Or to say it another way, whatever begins to exist has to have a cause. Listen, all of you guys exist, but all of you guys started. And if I were to ask you what caused you to exist or what started you, what would you guys say? Parents. Yeah, I heard it. Someone said their parents. Or if I were to ask what caused this podium, you would say maybe the manufacturer or wherever they got the metal from. But some, something caused it when it started. But what atheists want to say is that the universe just popped into being uncaused out of nothing. And that's just unreasonable. And there's two reasons to think that. The first is that something cannot come from no thing. The word nothing is called a universal negative. It means the absence of anything. It means not anything. We cannot get something coming from not anything. It doesn't make any logical sense. Let me give you an example. If you were walking on the beach and you found a brand new iPhone in its original packaging, and you knew that this iPhone had been released within the last year, or whenever the last iPhone was released, but within the last couple years, and you said to your friend, hey, where do you think that thing came from? If your friend said to you something like, dude, you're crazy. It just appeared there. Look at it. It popped out of nothing. There's no explanation for its existence. You'd look at him like he's crazy. Like, of course there was an explanation for that. It's obviously designed, and we know that it came into existence less than a year ago. It has to be there for a reason. 
But listen, if we changed the size of the iPhone and made it bigger and say we expanded it to the size of the Death Star, that wouldn't remove the need for an explanation. Making something bigger doesn't take away the need to explain it. And if we went from the size of the Death Star to the size of the universe, same exact thing. You still need an explanation for its existence. One of my favorite apologists puts it this way. To claim that something can come into being from nothing is worse than magic. When a magician pulls a rabbit out of the hat, at least you've got the magician, not to mention the hat. But if you say the universe came into being uncaused out of nothing, you don't have the hat or the magician. It's just there. And the other thing is, if something can come into being from nothing, why don't we see that happening all the time? Listen, I mentioned last night that a lot of times when I speak, I get nervous. And I think through what I'm going to say, and I try to think through what my audience is going to think, and a lot of things are going through my mind. But the one fear that I never have is that during the middle of my talking, a velociraptor is just going to appear in the middle of the sanctuary. That's not a reasonable fear. It's not, a, it's not something that I am afraid of happening because it never happens. We don't observe anything ever just popping into being uncaused out of nothing. All of our observation goes against that claim. And so everything that starts has to be started. But the universe had a start. This witness tells us the universe had a start. And both philosophical and mathematical arguments contribute to the reality that the universe started. Because it could not have existed for an infinite amount of time. Now, stay with me for a second. I'm going to go into this, and it's a little hard to visualize. And so I want you to go home and think about some of these things and research them on your own. But there's two issues with an infinite past. And the first is that in reality, you cannot actually have an infinite number of things. If you try to have an infinite number of things in reality, you break reality, basically. Let me give you an illustration of this. Let's say I had an actual infinite number of marbles, and I wanted to give you an infinite number of marbles. Well, I can do this in a couple of different ways, and I can give you the same number of marbles each time and end up with different marbles myself. So what I could do is I could give you all of my marbles, in which case I've given you an infinite amount of marbles, and I have how many marbles left? If I give you all my marbles, how many marbles left do I have? Zero. I'd have zero. <laughs> See, I mean, it already broke reality, right? <laughs> if I gave you all of my marbles, I would give you an infinite amount of marbles. I'd have no marbles left. But let's say I wanted to give you all of my even-numbered marbles. So then I would give you the same amount of marbles. I'd give you an infinite number of marbles, and I would still have an infinite number of marbles left. But it gets even worse. Let's say I have three favorite marbles, and I want to keep my three favorite marbles. So I give you all of the rest of my marbles, which are an infinite number of marbles, and now I have three marbles left. So I've given you the same number of marbles each time, and I've ended up with infinite, zero, and three. And you could actually do this so that I end up with any number of marbles. It doesn't work to have an infinite number of things in reality. And the other thing is, if the universe was infinitely old, it could never have actually gotten to the present moment. Think of it this way. If you had an infinite array of dominoes, so it, it, infinite all the way back, there's no beginning to it, you could never get to the last domino that would be right here because an infinite number of dominoes would have to fall first before you could ever get to the present moment. Think about that when you go home tonight. and It'll hurt your brain a little bit. But basically, there are problems with having an infinite number of things in reality. It doesn't work. 
And apart from that, we have scientific evidence to support the idea that the universe had a beginning. There's this thing called the second law of thermodynamics. And basically what it's, Pat actually mentioned it last night, basically what it says is the universe is running out of usable energy, and when the universe actually runs out of energy, it will completely freeze over and stop moving. So there will be no heat left in the universe, and the universe will freeze over. Ironically, this is called the heat death of the universe, even though it's completely frozen over. But the issue with that is if the universe was infinitely old, and if there is a finite amount of energy in the universe, why has the universe not already run out of energy? Why is it not already in heat death? Think about it this way. If you walked out into the parking lot and there was a car that was idling there, and you walked up to the car and the gas tank was closed, you could reasonably assume that the car had been turned on within the last day, two days, certainly not two weeks, and certainly not forever, because you know that it has a fixed amount of gas, and the gas is running out as it's idling, and so if it had been started three weeks ago, it would have already run out of energy. Same thing is true of the universe. There's a fixed amount of energy in the universe, and if it was infinitely old, it would have already run out of gas, like that car. On top of that, we have scientific support of the universe beginning from the expansion of the universe. Listen, all of the scientific evidence we have, that's not an over-exaggeration. All of the scientific evidence we have points to the idea that the universe is expanding, that it's moving out from us. But if the universe is expanding, essentially you can trace back to where it was all contracted into a single point. And scientists call this the singularity. And all space, all time, and all matter were in one infinitely dense point. And it was from there that the Big Bang model says that the universe expanded to what we see it today. Now listen, let me say real quick, the Big Bang model is incredibly friendly to Christianity. Don't let anyone tell you that it's simply an evolutionary construct. In fact, the reality is atheists hate the Big Bang model because it points to the reality that the universe had a beginning. And Christians say the universe had a beginning and God caused it in that way. So don't just throw away the Big Bang model as, as something that's not helpful to Christianity. One of my other favorite apologists says, in order for there to be a Big Bang, there has to be a Big Banger. Basically, if there was a beginning, it points to the reality that there's a God. So all of the evidence we have from philosophy and mathematics and science points to the universe having a beginning a finite time ago. But we said everything that starts has to be started. So if the universe was started, therefore the universe had a start, therefore the universe had to be started, or it had to be caused. So think of for a moment what could have actually caused the universe. So we can think about what the characteristics of this cause would be. Well, it would have to be uncaused, because if it had a cause, then that cause would have to have a cause, and that cause would have to have a cause out to infinity. And we've already looked at some of the issues with infinity. So in order for it to be a cause that's useful at all for our thinking, it'd have to be uncaused. It would have to be outside of all of time, space, and matter because it created time, space, and matter. It would have to be incredibly powerful because it made all of this. And it would have to be incredibly intelligent because of the design that we see in the world. We're going to look at that in a minute. And it would also have to be personal because if it existed outside of time, then in order for there to be cause from a timeless causer, it would have to be able to choose 
to enact that cause. So it would have to be a personal being. So what you end up with is a cause that is extremely powerful, uncaused, necessarily existing, non-contingent, non-physical, immaterial, and eternal, who created the entire universe and everything in it. If you don't want to call that God, that's fine. You can stick with that definition. But most people would refer to that as God. And so if the universe started, there has to be a God. No free lunch witness tells us that since the universe began to exist, it must have a cause because you can't get something from no thing. And the only thing that could have started the universe is what we would call God. So we have two more witnesses to look at. The next witness is called the Goldilocks witness. And the Goldilocks witness, it's really what's called the fine-tuning argument of the universe or the teleological argument. And what this witness says is that the universe is perfectly balanced for life. And an intelligent designer is the best explanation of that design. Think of it this way. Goldilocks liked things just right. She didn't like the porridge too hot. She didn't like the porridge just cold. There was a perfect balance that she liked. Let's say you were walking through the woods and you came across a cabin. And as you're walking up to this cabin, you hear music playing. And as you get closer, you realize that the music is actually your, your favorite song in the entire world. You walk into the cabin and the first thing you notice is that all of the decorations are what you would have picked. Your favorite colors, your favorite posters, all over the walls. You walk to the fridge and you find all of your favorite foods and you don't find any of the foods that you hate. You walk into the closet and you see all of the clothes that you personally would choose to wear on any given day. And then you walk over to the entertainment system and it has all of the video games that you most enjoy and all of the movies that you like and none of the ones that you don't like. What you would conclude is that someone arranged that cabin with you in mind. They knew you, and they knew what you liked, and so they set up the cabin, and they prepared it in just the right order for you to get there. Well, you can kind of think of the universe as that cabin. It's just right for life. It's fine-tuned for life. The initial conditions that came out of the Big Bang that we just talked about and it's really important that it's the initial conditions because what that does is it actually bypasses any of the arguments of evolution and Darwinism by going to the very source. If these conditions weren't right, then no life could have existed anywhere at any time in any way in the universe. And so it actually bypasses the evolutionary argument. And these initial conditions had to be delicately balanced in order to permit the existence of life anywhere in the cosmos. And guys, this is not something that Christians say. This is scientific fact. Atheists recognize the appearance of design in the universe. How many of you guys have heard of Richard Dawkins? Sweet, I got three. Awesome. <laughs> well, he's basically, he's a very famous atheist, very popular. A lot of atheists will appeal to him as one of their spokesmen, essentially. And he wrote a, a book called The God Delusion, and one of the things that he says in this book, and, and I'm quoting, is one of the greatest challenges to the human intellect has been to explain how the complex, improbable appearance of design in the universe arises. So this is one of the most famous atheists in the world, and he says that the universe appears to be designed. Another atheist who's a scientist, Freeman Dyson, this is what he says. As we look out into the universe and identify the many accidents of physics and astronomy that have worked out to our benefit... It almost seems as if the universe must, in some sense, have known that we were coming. 
So this is not just a Christian thing. This atheists readily admit that the universe appears to be fine-tuned. The difference is the explanation to that. And let me give you an example of what this fine-tuning is. Basically, it's, it's, um, there's two kinds of fine-tuning. There's constants in the universe and quantities. The quantities you can think of as like the mass of the universe. And the constants are um, numerical values that are, that are in some of the equations of the laws of physics. So the law of gravity has a gravitational constant. And that's just an arbitrary number, a random number in that equation that dictates how gravity works in the universe. These numbers are incredibly fine-tuned. So we couldn't change the numbers at all or life would not exist anywhere in the universe. And let me give you a couple examples of this, but let me read this quote to you first. This is another atheist speaking, and he says, The cliché that life is balanced on a knife edge is a staggering understatement in this case. No knife in the universe could have an edge that fine. So we're talking about things that are generally accepted in science. And let me give you some numerical context before I actually give you some of these constants. If the universe is 14 billion years old, what that would mean is that all of the seconds in the history of the universe would be 10 to the 17. Or essentially there would be, it's a 10 with 17 zeros after. It would be all the seconds in the history of the universe, 14 billion years. Or all of the subatomic particles, because there's a generally accepted mass of the universe. All of the subatomic particles in the universe, that number would be 10 raised to the 80th power, or 10 with 80 zeros after it. I'm going to talk about accuracy here in a moment, of changing one part in a certain degree, but think about this. The accuracy of one part in 10 raised to the 60th is like firing a bullet from one side of the observable universe and hitting a one-inch target 20 billion light years away. So that's, that's the kind of numbers that we're talking about here when, when I'm giving you these constants and quantities. And we're just going to look at two. One is the cosmological constant, which dictates how fast the universe is expanding. And this constant is tuned. If it was moved at all from this range that I'm going to give you, there would be no life in the universe. It's tuned to one part in 10 raised to the 120th power. Or in words, that's one million, billion, 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 billion. Yeah, does that make any sense to anyone? That's the kind of numbers we're dealing with. Otherwise, there would be no galaxies or planets in the universe. Let me give you a tiny bit of context on that. So that was 10 to the 120th. If you had one part in 10 to the 80th, that would be like changing one grain of sand worth of mass compared to the entire mass of the universe. We're talking about absolutely ridiculous numbers when we're, when we're looking at these. Or the gravity constant that I just talked about, if that gravitational constant varies in one part in 10 raised to the hundredth, matter would have recontracted into that singularity or it would have, there would be no grouping of matter at all in the universe. And that's actually considered the most flexible constant that we know. And that's 10 raised to the hundredth power. If you combine just those two together, remember I said there's 30 of these, but if you combine just those two, the cosmological and the constant of gravity, if you combine those two together, the odds that those two constants would be set to support life is one in a hundred million, trillion, 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 trillion. Let me give you a little context on that. If you were to assign one zero of that number to every subatomic particle in the universe, 
Remember, subatomic particles are, are electrons. They're smaller than atoms, smaller than atoms. If you were to assign one zero to every subatomic particle in the universe, you could not write that number down even if you used every bit of matter in existence. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. We hope you enjoyed the show today. If you would like Pat to speak at your church, Bible study, or perhaps hold an apologetics conference, give him a call at 483-0586, or you may contact him through the Evidence and Answers website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. To keep broadcast like this on the air, we rely on generous support from you. So for the opportunity to donate, head on over to our website. Once again, that's evidenceandanswers.org. And you may do so right there online on the home page. You will also find that we have a wide variety of resources available to you. Everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, including articles and additional audio for you to listen to or download. So be sure to share our website with your family and your friends. Evidence and Answers is grateful for our key sponsor, Highland Capital Management, providing investors with alternative investment solutions. To learn more, please visit them at hcmlp.com. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucran.